This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome Wade Wells to the program. How you doing, Wade? Very well. How are you? Okay. Wade Wells is site manager at Johnson Hall State Historic Site in Johnstown, New York. Uh, give us, I guess, the nickel introduction to Johnson Hall. What's the significance of this of this uh, structure? Well, Johnson Hall was the 1763 home of Sir William Johnson. He was the first baronet of New York and the British superintendent of Indian Affairs. And that brought a great many uh, Native Americans here for diplomatic purposes and also for trade. So it was, uh, Johnson Hall was a, a melting pot of, of cultures uh, in early uh, America. And this summer, as uh, Johnson Hall uh, is open now for the 2016 season, and I m- might mention they do tours Wednesday through Saturday from 10 to 5, Sunday from 1 to 5 uh, p.m. Uh, they also have uh, some special events. And you have a lecture series going about topics relating to Sir William Johnson, the Johnson family, colonial America, the American Revolution. And the uh, lecture that you gave uh, is called The Price of Loyalty, the Confiscation of Johnson Hall. Because William Johnson did all these things, but shortly after he died, the American Revolution took place and his property was confiscated. It was indeed. The, The property was confiscated from his son, Sir John and Lady Johnson, who had inherited it, uh, the bulk of the, the estate from Sir William, and, and that, that occurred uh, early in 1776. And the Lady Johnson you're referring to is, is Molly Brandt? No, Lady Johnson uh, was married to Sir John. Uh, her name was Polly Watts. Uh, she was from New York City, and uh, she was uh, living here with, with Sir John. They had previously lived at Fort Johnson. Uh, but after Sir William's death, moved into Johnson Hall, which was the proper seat of the baronet. Uh, Molly Brandt was uh, William Johnson's uh, longstanding consort, they say, his perhaps common-law wife, and she was a, a Mohawk uh, Indian. Indeed, she was. And Molly was living here with Sir William up until shortly after his death in 1774, and then she moved back to the upper castle of Canajahari where she had a farm and opened a trade store there. Now, uh, William Johnson, uh, you know, again, was this great uh, colonial leader. Uh, I don't want to, I mean, we do want to talk about the confiscation, but maybe to set the the scene for some of the things that he did. uh, When he came to America, and he was from Ireland, as I I recall, when he came to America, he came to kind of handle affairs for another relative who had a a land holdings south of the Mohawk River. But uh, Sir William, or William Johnson, moved to the north of the Mohawk River. And as you indicated, he became uh, very good at uh, dealing or befriending, uh, especially the Mohawk Nation. He he did indeed. Uh, One of the you know, significant aspects of Sir William's character was his uh, ability to uh, immerse himself in Native culture, and and he learned to speak their languages. He understood their customs and partook in, in them, and understood their religion as well. Um, and that made him very popular with them. He treated them very fairly, uh, and and that made him so popular, particularly with the, with the Mohawks, as he was very close to them, that they adopted him. Hmm. 
and he led them in in battle, even though he wasn't primarily a military man, uh, sometimes well, but I guess sometimes not. But uh, ultimately, uh, his support and the support of his Native American allies uh, were enabled the, the British to defeat the French. That's true. The, the, the alliance of the, the, the Native tribes was essential to gaining control of North America. Without them, you, you simply would have been lost. And, and Sir William was uh, very good at that. And he did have natives that were uh, auxiliaries on a number of campaigns, uh, the campaign which resulted in the Battle of Lake George, uh, the campaign against uh, Fort Niagara. Uh, and he was constantly spent sending them out as, as scouts uh, outfitting them and sending them on war parties as well with his other Indian Department officers. Well, maybe this is too much the you know great man theory of, of history uh, coming through when I say that it seemed that Sir William was, was sort of holding it together, uh, and he died in 1774. And I remember talking with you uh, and, uh, in 2014. There was a uh, big uh, commemoration of his, of his death. You know, it was an anniversary. But um, he died in 1774, and the American Revolution uh, gets going 1775 and 1776. Was it, it must have been apparent uh, to William Johnson that things were starting to uh, go downhill I think it was there. There, there were difficulties on the frontier, and w- w- with him holding the the conference uh, in 1774 here at Johnson Hall, which was held uh, because the Six Nations had requested it. Um, it was primarily to uh, for them to air their grievances of the uh, land encroachments that had taken place uh, in their territory, murders that were taking place on both sides. Um, and that was that was a violation. Those encroachments were a violation of the 1768 Fort Stanwix Treaty, and there was a, a great deal of difficulty with the colonists and the natives all along the the, the, the treaty line. Um, and Sir William, I think, with the activities of the committees of safety uh, and with the um, the Sons of Liberty, I think there were certainly an acknowledgement of, of troubles, whether he would, whether he saw an, an outbreak of civil war, you know, I, I, I can't say. Um, but there was certainly, you know, a period of unrest that, that I think would, was very clear to a number of people. But that civil war had not really happened when he passed away. No, not yet. I mean, it hadn't really, you could see factions dividing, but there really wasn't, you know, other than the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Boston Massacre, which which would happen really, nothing had come to serious blows until that point. Mm. So uh, maybe walk us through what, what happens in the years following uh, and, and the actual confiscation. Um, uh, John Johnson, the son, and his Wife Lady Johnson, they're staying at Johnson Hall. Molly Brandt's gone elsewhere to uh, property that's hers to the west. Um, how long did that situation last, or what precipitated the uh, the confiscation, if you will? Well, it, they didn't live here very long. Uh, they were living uh, prior at, at Fort Johnson, and it wasn't until early 1775 uh, after Sir William's death, that Sir John and Lady Johnson move in here. So they're only here maybe a year and a half at the very most. Um, and of course, 
there was uh, Battle of Lexington and Concord occurs in 1775. Uh, People really begin divide, drawing up sides, and there's, you know, the committees of safety are active, um, and people who are remaining loyal to the crown, you know, are coming under serious scrutiny. Um, and Guy Johnson, who's living at Fort Johnson, is accused of, who was the acting British superintendent of Indian Affairs at the time after Sir William's death, um, uh, comes under scrutiny for his involvement with the natives and uh, is accused by the committee men in Albany of inciting them against uh, the, uh, the the American colonists who are who are not in favor of continuing, which is a nice way of putting it, kind of uh, not in favor of continuing crown rule. Um, these men were all remaining loyal to the crown, and they were being investigated and watched. Um, their activities were, uh, and some were forced to parole themselves uh, or face arrest, which meant that they agreed to uh, not take up arms against the rebelling colonists and to remain neutral uh, and, and, and sit this out. Well, that wasn't possible for the Johnson family. I mean, they're far too involved in in British uh, colonial government. Um, and some of them, gentlemen soldiers, uh, saw it as their responsibility to uphold the established form of government. And so uh, Guy Johnson chooses to leave in 1775 and go to Canada, uh, Joseph Brandt with him, and, and a number of others. Sir John is still here in 1770, early 1776, mm -hmm. um, as you might say, a holdout. But Johnstown was also sort of a hotbed of loyalists. There, many of the people locally remained loyal to the crown, however active or not, and the majority of them were Johnson tenants uh, or people that they had set up in business in the town. Mm -hmm. So um, that's really uh, where John comes under scrutiny uh, by General Schuyler and the committee men in Albany that uh, this person could be problematic for them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, do they actually force him out, or how, or, or does he flee? Because they don't, they don't force they don't force him out. But what they but what General Schuyler does in January of 1776 is he he marches uh, three thousand men to Cocknawaga, which is today the area of Fonda, and sends dispatches up to Johnson Hall, uh, ordering John to. Uh, surrender his himself his arms and offer uh, an offer to parole himself uh, or to be taken and, and arrested and these dispatches dispatch riders are running back and forth between Johnson Hall and Cocknawaga. John has fortified Johnson Hall uh, previously because of the disputes because there are threats against the Johnson family um, that uh, they feel their 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 safety is is in jeopardy. So there are tenants here that are armed. He has wall guns, swivel guns, and two light field pieces here. And ultimately, uh, John realizes that there's no holding out against three thousand men. He only has about four hundred men here at Johnson Hall, and so. Uh, just before the deadline of midnight, he sends a dispatch to General Schuyler uh, 
offering to parole himself. Oh, does, does he do that? He does indeed. Uh, Schuyler marched with the detachment of men on Johnson Hall. They disarmed uh, the tenants that were here, any of the retainers, and they allowed Sir John uh, a set of personal armor. And by that, it was very likely his sword and a, probably a brace of pistols that were allowed for his personal defense. But as you explained what this parole meant, he had to agree not not to be a lawyer? What did he have to agree to? He had to agree not to take up arms against the colonists and to remain and to remain neutral, uh, not to be an active loyalist, which, of course, was really impossible. And he was badgered. Uh, Schuyler, of course, disarmed the estate, marched back to Albany, and John, as the other Johnsons were, had been you know, was harassed with accusations of gathering arms and inciting the the natives, um, which he wasn't actively doing, though he had still remained in correspondence and, you know, was prepared uh, to do the bidding of of, uh, Crown officials if if needed. In any case, ultimately, it it brings him to a situation where... uh, the 3rd New Jersey Regiment uh, under uh, General Sullivan uh, is ordered by General Schuyler in May of 1776 uh, to come and arrest Sir John and to confiscate Johnson Hall. So what happens then? Well, the 3rd New Jersey Regiment, uh, which was in Albany at the time, uh, on May the, I believe it was May the the 10th, or, I'm sorry, May the 17th, um, they were gathered up, formed, inspected, and uh, Captain Bloomfield uh, had previously been been uh, outfitting his men to march to Quebec, but was given a secret mission uh, to march to Johnstown to surprise and take uh, John Johnson to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, he would have been he would have been jailed and tucked away out of the way so that he was no longer a threat uh, to the rebelling colonists uh, in, in this area. Uh, what happens is he receives news uh, through the valley that they are coming, uh, and he escapes with about 170 men, uh, including about 50 natives, according to Bloomfield's journal. And they think when they ultimately they march up from from Albany, they arrived uh, on the 19th here in Johnstown. They believe that he is skulking about, waiting to attack them. When in fact, uh, John is moving with his party as quickly as he can through the Adirondacks, uh, hoping to avoid uh, being pursued and captured by them. Sounds pretty dramatic. Could be a movie. Indeed, it could. Yeah. And what's happening to Molly Brandt at this time? Or is she still well, up Molly's in... Molly's still living in the western part of the valley uh, in Canajahari. And she, during this time period, or shortly after this time period, um, has visits from the committees of safety out there uh, who are suspicious that she's feeding information about... Uh, rebel troop movements and activities in the valley uh, to loyalists in Canada, which indeed was the truth. Um, And she ultimately leaves uh, in in late 77 uh, after the Battle of Oriskany when she's accused of feeding information uh, to Joseph 
about uh, troop movements to come and relieve the siege at Fort Stanwix. Uh, but she was really, uh, of, of this group of people, of this family, um, Molly was really the last one to leave the valley. Hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned something that the, the rebels, if you will, were concerned that uh, John Johnson would uh, be a problem unless he was uh, or, uh, imprisoned or something like that. And that indeed proved to be the case. I mean, he left uh, the Mohawk Valley, went to Canada, but he and uh, Joseph Brandt and and other, you know, others, both Native American and, and loyalists from, from the valley, uh, they came back frequently. There were many attacks they made in the area. Indeed. I mean, Sir John was not uh, that well organized here. He did have uh, tenants here who were former soldiers, uh, Scotch Highlander soldiers from the uh, French and Indian War, who, when their regiments were disbanded, ultimately settled on Sir William's property. So you can kind of consider that a standing, a small standing army here. But nonetheless, they were not provisioned and provided with sufficient uh, munitions that they could have been an immediate uh, hard threat at that point, especially after having been disarmed. But once they were loose on the frontier, uh, John uh, made his way to Canada, and uh, he raised the King's Royal Regiment of New York. You're right. And that, that regiment, along with Native allies and, and other Loyalist units and British regular units, uh, made a number of raids through the valley, particularly the 1780 raids of May and October, which were particularly destructive. But uh, those other units were active uh, at Cherry Valley in, in 70, uh, 1778 um, in various other raids uh, through the valley, including later in 1781, the Battle of Johnstown. Mm. Uh, which was what, one of the last battles of the uh, Revolution? It was. It was one of the last uh, large engagements of, of the Revolution. Uh, there were other smaller uh, in uh, smaller engagements or skirmishes, but uh, for uh, for our area in this theater, uh, there were no battles that large again mm. uh, after the Battle of Johnstown. And just think about it, that's a long, long time. I mean, it's 1776 when John Johnson goes to Canada, right? Yes. But And, and we're still talking, they're fighting in 1781. I mean, the uh, Mohawk Valley, or the, the general area around Johnstown and other parts of the Mohawk Valley uh, are, are dangerous places. You know, it's um, there, there's this sort of a, this real atmosphere of a civil war because you've got the loyalists coming back, you've got the Mohawks coming back, trying to retake what they see as theirs. Yes, indeed, and and that that really becomes particularly so after the Burgoyne Saint Ledger uh, campaign of 1777. The the, the the emphasis of that campaign was to cut off New England, or cut the head off the snake, as it were, uh, divide New England from the rest of the colonies to quell the rebellion. Um, the campaign, as many of us know, wasn't all that terribly successful. Uh, and, and really, the, the Crown then decided to move its efforts south rather than try to, to capture and hold anything in the, here in the north. They, north, they thought that they would have greater support with the Loyalists in the South and moved their campaigns down here. Mm-hmm. That caused the war here in the North, uh, the manner of the war here in the North, to shift from an attempt to capture, to hold, 
to divide, it became really a war of destruction at mm-hmm. that point. And, and who, the people who are left here primarily to fight that war are loyalist units, um, native peoples who have been dispossessed of their property here and are really refugees in Canada. And those are the people who are moving back down in this valley. And to a great extent, it was a war of retaliation against the people here in the valleys. Um, and that's when the destructive raids come about. It's not a matter of capturing and holding now. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of going in, destroying crops, uh, disrupting planting, disrupting harvesting, uh, depriving of them, them of their cattle, their barns, and their homes, thereby hoping to break their back um, and, and, and cause them to be a defeated people. Um, and really, a lot of the crops that were coming out of the Schoharie and the Mohawk Valleys were feeding the Continental Army as well. And if you can deprive them of food, you can deprive them of, of their, their stamina to function. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, you know, again, this goes on for a long time, and it's on both sides, or at least there was one uh, campaign where the rebel army uh, went to various Indian villages that still remained and uh, did the same thing to those villages that were done, let's say, to Cherry Valley or Johnstown. Yes, exactly. And, and really, it was, the, it was the Cherry Valley Massacre in 1778, which was the, the, the driving force, uh, or at least part of the driving force of the, of the Clinton-Sullivan campaign of 1779, where Generals Clinton and Sullivan were ordered uh, to the western part of the colony of New York by uh, General Washington to basically lay waste uh, to the villages of the native people, they were girdling, girdling trees and burning crops, and you know just tens of thousands of bushels of corn. And it really, um, it it really uh, made the Six Nations uh, virtually destitute. Mm. And John Johnson, you know, if he's the one character we're sort of following through all this, he survived the war, right? I mean, what did he do? He did. Lady Johnson and Sir John survived the war. Um, after the the house was uh, and all of the properties were confiscated here, uh, Lady Johnson remained behind after John had fled to Canada, and um, she was taken into custody, house arrest basically, and removed to Albany. The main reason for that was that they were concerned that she would su- uh, supply support or provide support to Sir John, who they still thought was, was you know, close by in a, in a threat, um, which he, he wasn't. He had made his way to, to Montreal uh, in about a little bit less than uh, two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so she was pregnant and had two small children and obviously couldn't make the trek to the Adirondacks. Uh-huh. And so she was uh, taken and, and placed under, uh, under house arrest um, in Albany. And the house was sealed up um, and was guarded by officers of the 3rd New Jersey Regiment, who, while Lieutenant Bloomfield was escorting Lady Johnson to Albany, broke into the house, became drunk, and looted it, uh, for which they were court-martialed um, and one officer discharged. Mm. Um, and after that, Johnson Hall lay under guard uh, for pretty much the remainder of the war until it was sold to cover the new government's war debt, as all Loyalist properties were. But Lady Johnson, 
petitioned the commissioners for release uh, so that she could go to New York, which was where she was originally from. They denied, but allowed her to go to uh, Kinderhook, where she applied to the commissioners uh, there for release. Uh, where, again, she was declined, uh, but she was close enough to New York, some friends helped her to escape to the city. And then, of course, she rejoined uh, John in Canada. Wow. Because at the time she went to New York, was it under British control? Was that It was under British control at that time, yes. Huh. So, uh, and, and did they spend the rest of their lives in Canada, uh, John and uh, the lady? Not, not entirely. Um, John had been sent to England in 1766 uh, by his by his father, and a friend had wrote, had written to Sir William and said, "You should that John spends too much paraphrasing the quote. John spends too much time among the valley folk. He should be sent home to be derusticated." <laughs> and so John was sent to England, but he never really liked it there. Um, so uh, Lady Johnson did, and and spent some time living in England, whereas John was in. Uh, John was in Canada, uh, but ultimately uh, they they both they both uh, wound up in in Canada as, as a permanent home. You already answered, I think, the, the, what I was going to ask you. But what happened to Johnson Hall but during the war? Did the rebels use it for anything? Or well, they did actually. Um, the The state of New York at that time. Uh, was making the most out of seized loyalist properties, and they had they had leased uh, Johnson Hall to a local family, the Salmons family, uh, who were working the farm. And of course, there were extensive orchards and gardens here as well, which I'm sure they were making use of. But we know uh, that during the Battle of Johnstown, um, I'm not sure that they were living in the house. There have been some people who said that they. Yeah, they were living in the house, but I don't have any actual proof of that. But they were leasing the farm because one of the the, uh, the Salmon's sons in his um, deposition after the war states that on the day of the Battle of Johnstown that his father had ordered him to go to the Hall Farm to work it. Uh, so it's obvious that he wasn't here in, in residence at that time. Uh, so they were, they were charged... Uh, 300 pounds uh, annually for the use of the of Johnson Hall, which was the 700-acre farm. Mm-hmm. After the Revolutionary War, the uh, Johnson Hall passed into private lands, or was granted to someone. It was it, it was sold at auction. Uh, all of the contents were sold out of the out of the structures, and then the home farm of 750 acres and the immediate buildings were sold. Uh, in 1785, the, the first resident, uh, a couple of years after the, the end of the war, took up residence here, uh, Mr. Caldwell well of Albany. And he owned it for about a year and then sold it at a loss because he was a, a merchant in Albany of snuff, chocolate, <laughs> um, and mustard. Okay. And his, his business burned. Oh. And so he sold Johnson Hall, and it went through... Uh, a number of hands, everyone's selling it at a loss until the 1790s when it was purchased by um, uh, Silas Talbot, who was the captain of the frigate Constitution. And he invested in some new buildings and orchards here. And he owned it uh, during the 1790s. Ultimately, when he sold it, he lost money as well. <laughs> okay. Um, well, people, we're... people were moving west. 
and they wanted their own property. They didn't want to. Uh, they didn't want to rent here, and most most property had been had been completely taken up. So, uh, ultimately, it's purchased by the Aiken family in 1806, and they intermarry with the Wells family, who owns it up until 1906, when Sabra Wells sold it to the state of New York for twenty five thousand dollars. Well, Wade Wells, we're, we're just about out of time. I thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Wade Wells is the site manager at Johnson Hall State Historic Site. It's now open for the 2016 season. Uh, they have uh, other uh, lectures coming uh, this uh, summer and also other um, big events, and uh, they're open for tours uh, Wednesdays through Saturdays from 10 to 5 and Sundays from 1 to 5 p.m. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.